Hello and welcome to Gender Troubles. I'm Emma. I'm Eva. And we majored in gender studies so you don't have to. What are we talking about today? Um, Today I wanted to start what's probably going to turn out to be a series um, um, looking at kind of the founding of Planned Parenthood and the birth control movement specifically in America but it does cross over to Canada um, and taking us through the different major milestones to where we are now, um, which is still not great in a lot of states and for a lot of people. Um, so today we're kind of going to begin at the beginning. And also I think this ties in well to our kind of first five or so episodes, kind of looking at liberal feminism and its offshoots. Um, because like with your one on liberal feminism and whatnot, like it starts kind of around turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Um, and goes there. So um, before I start, just full disclosure, I had my first internship, well, my only internship um, at Planned Parenthood when I was 19. So a few years ago, uh, right out of high school, doing public affairs work, um, calling people up and asking for money and going and talking about my vagina in front of the governor. Um, and so I'm not coming from this from a completely objective standpoint. I also mm-hmm. was, you know, went to Planned Parenthood for years and years mm-hmm. um, and just stuffed paper bags filled with the free condoms to get them <laughs> out to school because we weren't allowed. We didn't have a school nurse who could give out condoms. So I just decided to make oh. it to do that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Planned Parenthood as it is now is like a huge organization. They have a big wing of political action. And then they also have over 600 clinics uh, where they do, you know, any all sort of like sexual health um, stuff around like gender health as well. Um, and before my internship, actually, the Christmas before, someone gave me a book called The Secret History of Wonder Woman by the historian Jill Lepore. Because uh, I wonder if you get this when family thinks of you as like, oh, you're the feminist, you get a lot of like feminist related gifts. Okay. Um, so they're like, oh, Wonder Woman, she's a woman. This is a girl. Here, take it. Um, and it's a fantastic book. And it kind of chronicles the cartoon character, comic character Wonder Woman. Um, and its creator was this guy who was really into free love. And he had two wives. And they all lived in this big farmhouse. And one of his wives was named Olive Byrne. And Olive Byrne's mother was named Ethel Byrne. And Ethel Byrne was a sister to Margaret Sanger and helped fi- found Planned Parenthood. Okay. Um, and she is just completely lost to history. Even if you go on like Planned Parenthood websites and stuff, they say like Margaret Sanger find it, founded this with her sister. Um, and yeah, there's not a lot about her and Jill Lepore and her work. And she did a lot of research and a lot of interviews with family and relatives really kind of brought Ethel Byrne back into our, you know, historical consciousness. And I got really excited reading about that. And so this is a story about these two sisters. Um, So for a little context in uh, the US in around the 1910s where our story starts, birth control resources were highly classed. So generally upper-class women knew of the different ways to prevent pregnancy and had access to birth control and abortions. Uh, And in Europe, 
birth control information and birth control clinics were already kind of gaining popularity and social acceptance, but America was unsurprisingly a little bit behind. Mm -hmm. uh, so typically it was the immigrant working class and marginalized Americans who had big families and little to no information on contemporary birth control practices. What were about, do you know what like the like go-to birth control practice of like upper-class women in the 1910s was? I'm just like, um, like were condom, condoms were Yeah, around? condoms, yeah. Okay. condoms. Um, the like a diaphragm and a cervical cap were also used a lot okay. and douching, uh, douching right. syringes. Um, and obviously like, I wanna say like people have been preventing pregnancies all over the world for you know centuries and centuries. Yeah. Um, and what here I'm just talking about is these birth control technologies that were kind of groundbreaking for the time. So condoms, cervical caps, diaphragms and douching syringes. Mm -hmm. So Margaret Sanger was a nurse and she moved to New York in the early 1910s with her husband and three children. And she worked uh, as a visiting nurse in the tenement buildings and began publishing two series of columns in a socialist newspaper. And the columns were called What Every Woman Should Know and What Every Girl Should Know. And they very frankly and simply talked about uh, sex education and you know everything from birth control to masturbation, whatnot. Um, she was very active in the New York socialist scene and she hung out with other famous socialists like John Reed and Emma Goldman. Oh my God, um, that's so cool. Yeah, they had a falling out, um, yeah. <laughs> which is never heard of in uh, <laughs> radical spaces. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, Sanger began publishing a more consistent uh, education tool called The Woman Rebel, which was an eight page journal, which offered contraceptive information along with kind of feminist manifestos. And she did this with the help of her sister, Ethel Byrne. And the woman rebel started in 1914. The journal was declared obscene by the Justice Department and Sanger was indicted. And so she fled the country to the United Kingdom and left her children behind in New York. Oh gosh. So while in the UK, Sanger began to study different contraceptive method, methods and was inspired to start her own free birth control clinic after visiting one in Amsterdam. So she also really began championing the diaphragm as the best form of birth control because it uh, was larger and more stable than a cervical cap and more effective than the douching method, which was popular in the 19th century, which was essentially post-sex injecting bleachy, gross stuff to kind of kill all the sperms. Bleach? I thought it was just, oh. Stuff like oh, that, oh, yeah. Man. And what, Kate, I don't know what a cervical cap is. It's like a little, imagine, if you had a diva cup yeah. and you turned it so the cup part was facing right. out and you stuck it up there okay, so it just yeah. it just prevents anything from getting to the cervix because it blocks it off right i guess that's pretty self-explanatory yeah yeah uh, a little cap like a little a little yeah. toque for your cervix just <laughs> on the cervix that makes sense a year after she uh went to the uk her sister or her sister told her that her daughter um, was hospitalized and her sister Ethel Byrne was also a nurse and was taking care of her on Mount Sinai and so Margaret came rushing back and her daughter Peggy ended up dying um, and because of her death the charges against Margaret Sanger were dropped kind of out of respect for her loss hmm. um, and the next year after kind of processing as much as one can the loss of a child she decided to open her own birth control clinic, the first one in America. 
and she decided to set it in Brownsville, in the Brownsville neighborhood in Brooklyn uh, in the fall of 1916. So Brownsville is a residential neighborhood east of Flatbush, and it was filled with poor and working class immigrant families, mostly Jewish and Italian. So the residents were kind of crowded into these tenement apartments, or they lived just in condemned buildings. And it seemed kind of like the perfect place to set up shop and offer birth control advice. Mm -hmm. um, and the heiress to a large steel fortune, who was friends with Margaret Sanger, paid the first month's rent. And uh, a scholar, Peter Engelman, who wrote a book called The History of the Birth Control Movement in America, who seems to really dislike Margaret Sanger. Um, <laughs> so all of his uh, quotes are very snarky, but he said that like, she, like the heiress, helped open a productive tap of wealthy women, a tap that Sanger never closed. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> How I feel about that, but yeah. it is true. She, this was the first real example of her using her connections with wealthy women and using this growing um, concern by these wealthy, mostly women to try to help the conditions of those who are living in poverty. Right. I mean, that sounds um, great. It sounds like mutual aid. It sounds like wealthy yeah. people like funding a service that is desperately needed. And I don't know what a yeah. problem is. I know. <laughs> Um, so Sanger opened the clinic with her younger sister, Ethel, and the uh, activist Fania Mindel, and uh, Mindel was Jewish, and she was fluent in multiple languages, including Yiddish, so that made her really an asset in communicating with the clients in the community. And they all kind of, they canvassed looking for, uh, you know, ways, cheap ways to furnish their clinic and really trying to scrimped and saved along with this heiress ladies. Um, help to finally set it up. So I'm sending you the copy of what the flyer that the three women brought around the neighborhood. And I was hoping you could read the top part because the rest are not in English. Yes, for sure. Okay. Uh, it is addressed to mothers, exclamation point, and it reads, can you afford to have a large family? Do you want any more children? If not, why do you have them? Do not kill. Do not take life prevent safe harmless information can be attained of trained nurses at 46 Amboy Street near Pitkin Avenue Brooklyn tell your friends and neighbors all mothers welcome a registration fee of 10 cents entitles any mother to this information yeah and then it says the same thing in Yiddish and the same thing in Italian right um and I think this pamphlet is really kind of telling because it speaks to the three key facets of the early birth control movement, which was specifically trying to support um, people in poverty, um, emphasizing being able to have autonomy and take control of your body, and also preventing pregnancy. Um, and so despite Planned Parenthood's close association as it has now with abortion services, Sanger was pretty vocally anti-abortion. Mm. And it's kind of hard to know if her anti-abortion stance was based on like personal morals or if in trying to make birth control services mainstream and accessible, she kind of strategically chose to distance herself from abortion. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the time abortion was seen as a pretty, it was a dangerous undertaking to do. Um, and 
the uh, Margaret Sanger and Ethel Byrne, they really didn't want people to associate their clinic with kind of the back alley abortion doctors. Right. So that's why they put a big emphasis on preventing pregnancy mm-hmm. as opposed to terminating a pregnancy once, you know, mm-hmm. once it's already happened. And, you know, abortion was not legalized in the U.S. until 1973 with the mm-hmm. landmark Supreme Court case of Roe v. Wade. Um, so her stance wasn't surprising, but considering the legacy that Planned Parenthood has and considering how often people associate it with abortion services, it's an interesting it's an interesting fact. Mm-hmm. So on October 16th, 1916, the Brownsville Clinic opened its doors and uh, Fannie and Mindell registered each visitor and she took down their names and the addresses and importantly, the histories of childbirth, abortions and miscarriages. She also was tasked to watch over the many children who were brought to the clinic with their mothers. And while the mothers were in the adjacent room, they were learning ways to prevent contraception from um, Byrne and Sanger, who I might just start calling Ethel and Margaret because it's a podcast and we could be informal. Yes. Um, so <laughs> Ethel and Margaret <laughs> uh, transmitted all the information orally, which was, um, and used, they used a lot of diagrams. And this was in part because it was a way to circumvent laws that prohibited selling or displaying birth control information. But mm. if you told someone it technically was allowed Wild. So with this new information on how to use condoms, cervical caps, diaphragms, inducing syringes, women could go to their closest pharmacy and purchase these products in different ways mm-hmm. uh, because pharmacies had them stocked for different hygienic or medical purposes. And again, this kind of outsourcing of the birth control purchases helped protect the women from prosecution because they weren't technically distributing contraceptives in the clinic. Right. And the clinic was incredibly popular and women came from New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, all over. And many of the patients who came had really heartbreaking stories of the strains of excessive childbearing as recorded by Fania Mindell. So one mother was reported to have self-aborted 28 times and another had carried 15 pregnancies to term by the time she was 36. Oh my gosh. And Margaret and Ethel had an emotional connection to these stories, not only because they were both mothers, but because their own mother had been pregnant 18 times over 22 years. Oh my gosh, what does that do to your body? I know. It's wild. Yeah. So this they were doing good service, business mm-hmm. was booming, and a week later, a not so very undercover policewoman entered the reception room, and she was wearing a very nice suit, but then like put it tattered shawl on top and hope no one would notice. And it was very clear to all the women that this was a police officer, but Ethel decided to just treat the officer like any other patient and explain the birth control methods. And two days after that, four police officers entered the clinic and arrested um, Margaret Sanger and Fania Mandel and confiscated all of their tools and their patient records. Mm-hmm. And unwilling to cooperate, the women were hauled out of the building and into the patrol wagon. Later that evening, Ethel Byrne was arrested at her home and all three women were released on bail and their trials were set for the following year. Mm-hmm. So both Margaret and Ethel were charged with the violation of something called section 1142 of the state penal code, which prevented the distribution of birth control information. And Fannie Mandel was charged with selling a quote unquote indecent book, which was Sanger's What Every Girl Should Know. And Ethel Byrne was the first to be tried uh, beginning of next year, January 18th, 1917. 
So Ethelburn's lawyer did not kind of try to disprove the charges. She ju he just instead focused on saying that the penal code was unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't work because on January 22nd, Ethel was found guilty and sentenced to 30 days in a workhouse on Blackwell Island prison. She wow. was forbidden from seeing anyone except her attorney while incarcerated. And Ethel immediately announced that she'd be going on a hunger strike, a successful tactic that was used by British suffragettes a lot. Mm -hmm. The night before her incarceration, she arranged for her children to be taken care of and finalized her will and her farewell meal included ice cream and turkey. And it's kind mm -hmm. of unclear what time exactly her hunger strike began. Mm -hmm. And always the rebel, Ethel spent the ride in the patrol wagon to prison teaching her fellow inmates about contraceptives. <laughs> That's great. But she's great at dinner parties. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> the prison officials didn't want to publicize Ethel's strike um, because they didn't want to encourage other prisoners and activists to do the same. But the commissioner of corrections posted daily bulletins kind of updating the public about her health. So step back for a second talking about who is Ethel Byrne or who was Ethel Byrne. So unlike Margaret, who has published autobiography and has been the subject of countless books and articles, there's very little public knowledge on Ethel. We know that she had a short marriage to an abusive man named Jack, who she met in school. And after she became pregnant at 18, they eloped. We know that she had two children. And when her daughter, Olive, was born in 1904, and Margaret was the midwife, Ethel's husband came home belligerently drunk and threw the normal newborn baby into a snowbank, oh where she was quickly rescued by Margaret Sanger. Mm. By all accounts, Ethel didn't want to be a parent. And one day she dropped her two toddler age kids off at her in-laws and got on a train and moved to New York City. Well. She went study nursing and begin a new life. And married women at that time weren't allowed to train as nurses somehow. So she lied and just said she was single. <laughs> so many weird archaic laws. Like so you, many weird you archaic laws. You shall not practice not nursing if you are married. Like what? Why? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's because like you have better things to do. Yeah, than, you have you know. other people to take care of. <laughs> and uh, Ethel's children were told by their grandparents that just the mother had died. That's kind of what they said to hide the family shame. So Ethel moved to an apartment in Greenwich Village with a boyfriend and sometimes her sister Margaret would stay with them. And during this time, both Ethel and Margaret, like I said, were really into socialism and feminism and the free love movement. And Ethel was dedicated and a passionate nurse and also much more radical than her sister, according to family and friends. Can you describe what the free love movement is about? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Essentially, not swingers, <laughs> but this idea that marriage as this institution wasn't really about love. Um, and Emma Goldman's written a piece about that. Uh, I think it's called Love and Marriage. And so people who were like polyamorous and into ideals around, you know, very kind of idyllic utopian um, and breaking free of just heteronormative and you know stuff like that yeah yeah like enforced um, monogamy and exactly yeah. exactly okay cool yeah it was apparently really big with the middle class at that mm -hmm. point i know that because my grandfather once gave me a book called free love in the middle class 
And I have not read it, but I'm assuming that I'm there assuming a relationship. that the nub and the gist. Yeah. They would have written a whole book otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> so despite the prison's kind of best efforts to keep Ethel a silent martyr, the news of her hunger strike reached the front pages of newspapers across the country. And the commissioner of corrections, who had banned press from visiting the workhouse, cited Ethel's strike as nothing more than a publicity stunt. Um, and ironically, or not, all of the secrecy and dismissal around coming out of Blackwell Island just magnified the drama of the event and made Ethel's hunger strike more popular to the American people. Um, not only were newspapers reporting on the issue, they were also popularizing the birth control fight and bringing the usual private taboo topic into the public sphere. Mm -hmm. There are no recorded firsthand accounts of Ethel's prison's day. All the documents around her and her hunger strike came from kind of four types of secondary sources. So the statements from her attorney, health bulletins written um, by the commissioner of corrections, the kind of sensationalized newspaper articles, and one single chapter in Margaret Sanger's autobiography. <laughs> I am sending another thing to you, mm -hmm. which is a uh, clip from a newspaper article, and I'm hoping you could read it out loud. For sure. Okay, so it's from the Daily Gate City, and it says, headline, forcible feeding of Mrs. Byrne, crammed food down her throat, woman who could eat but wouldn't eat was made to eat after five days fast, then put her to bed. Mrs. Byrne's strong will will enable, will enabled her to go without food until she was ready to collapse. Yes. So very kind of sensational old timey language, definitely something that, you know, newsies would be calling out yeah. if we were watching the film newsies. <laughs> <laughs> this is also a paper from Keokuk, Iowa. Um, January in 1917. And keep in mind, there was a war going on right now. And this made front page news. Yeah. This, her hunger strike, it was the first real public hunger strike from a woman in America in the prison system. Um, and everyone was paying attention, kind of breathlessly. After the first few days of completely forgoing food and liquids, Ethel was removed from her cell and taken to the Blackwell Island Hospital. And the bulletin issued by the commissioner said that she had become weaker and presumably kind of recognizing the public sympathy was gathering around Ethel as her health deteriorated. The commissioner tried to discredit her and he was quoted as saying, quote, I've not paid much attention to Mrs. Burns threatened hunger strike. We have had people who say they were on hunger strikes, but we never had a real honest to goodness hunger strike. I do not expect any trouble with Mrs. Burns. <laughs> he also said that it would be really easy for Byrne to sneak food and water without the guards knowing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> prison was not happy with her. Yeah. And during the beginning of her hunger strike is when the miscommunications and differences in ideology and strategy between the two sisters, the rift really began to form. So while Ethel was implementing a militant activist tactic, uh, Margaret was rounding up support and favors from rich society ladies and politicians. Right. One socialite in Margaret's circle sent a telegram to Byrne while she was in prison telling her to stop the strike before she ended up starving herself to death. And Ethel thought it was from her sister just kind of using this rich lady as a shield to give her real opinion. Right. The day after Ethel was hospitalized, Margaret revealed to the press that Ethel had two children 
and she was in trying to drum up sympathy for her sister, she lied and said that Burns' children were about to move to New York City to live with her. And actually, Ethel had basically no communication at all with her children. Uh, but Margaret really understood how the figure of a mother can really be kind of weaponized mm-hmm. for, for public opinion and sympathy, which is definitely a theme we've had throughout yeah. liberal feminism. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and on January 27th, Ethel Byrne became the first documented case of a woman in America being force fed while incarcerated, which is wow. a grim record to break. Yeah. Prison doctors rolled her up in a blanket, kind of like a burrito, and then forced a mixture of eggs, milk, and stimulants into her stomach through a long rubber tube. Oh, and she fought the entire time. Mm-hmm. During this, she, uh, through her attorney, told the press, quote, it makes little difference whether I starve or not. With 8,000 deaths a year in New York from illegal operations, meaning abortions, on women, mm-hmm. one more death won't make much difference. Oof. Yeah. Dedicated. Really dedicated. Yeah. And even with these forced feedings, Ethel's health was really declining. So with the help of some influential political and social connections, Margaret went to visit the governor of New York in Albany and plead for her sister to be pardoned. The governor agreed on a conditional pardon, uh, saying that Ethel could be released, but she would never be able to break the law again and therefore would never be able to work in the birth control movement Mm -hmm. ever again. And by Sanger's own account, she refused to agree on her sister's behalf without consulting her first. So on February 1st, with the letter of pardon from the governor in her pocket, she was allowed entrance into Blackwell Island prison to speak to her sister. So I'm going to paint you a a word picture now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So lying semi-conscious on a cot in a cold prison cell, Ethel was almost unable to speak. According to her sister, Ethel was so close to death that it was hard to rationalize the governor's pardon to her. So Margaret reportedly said, quote, it's useless for me to discuss the question of pardon with a dying woman. I had to make up my mind and assume responsibility for her conduct in the future. So Margaret Sanger accepted the pardon on her sister's behalf and Ethel was released later that day. Ethel was let out of the prison by two guards supporting her on either side because the prison wanted to make sure that she was walking out of the prison, again, trying to downplay her hunger strike. Mm -hmm. Um, And smelling salts were used to kind of keep her conscious. And one of Margaret Sanger's well-connected companions, who was also there, ordered that a stretcher be fetched and she wrapped Ethel Byrne in her own fur coat. And I think it's probably this image of like an emancipated, barely lucid Ethel Byrne being carried to the hospital in a socialite's fur coat mm-hmm. that kind of sums up the birth control movement shift from working class grassroots activism to upper class political negotiation and compromise. Yeah. The day after her sister was pardoned, Margaret Sanger was found guilty of violating the same code in court and said she would go on a hunger strike but actually seemed to have been a cooperative inmate and served her time without struggle and Fania Mindell she received um she was convicted as well but it was later overturned on appeal okay post strike there's very little known again about Ethel Burns life um she reconnected with her children and continued to live in New York City and she was 
you know, made to watch this movement she co-created continue in a new direction without her. Right. With only Sanger's kind of one-sided accounts of the events, it's not, it's hard to not to speculate on the details between, you know, the sister-in-law's now, the sister's now strained relationship. Mm -hmm. Some scholars think that Margaret was jealous of the publicity that Ethel got um, with her kind of martyrdom and wished to push her sister into the periphery of the narrative. And others believe that Ethel was forever bitter that her sister had arranged a pardon um, that was conditional on her not working in the birth control movement anymore. Um, no one is sure if the sisters had had a chance to discuss the boundaries of Ethel's hunger strike beforehand or whether if they had, that would have changed the outcome. But what we do know is Ethel Byrne was a militant birth control activist and she was never associated with the movement ever again. Wow. And she died in 1955, five years before the legalization and FDA approval of the first birth control pill. Oh my gosh. So movement that had once been focused around like Greenwich Village Bohemians kind of migrated to upper class neighborhoods and leaving a bunch of key players behind. Later in life, um, Ethel's daughter Olive observed that her mother resented the passage of the movement, quote, from the socialist to the society crowd. Yeah, I bet. And Olive also said of her mother, quote, my mother was not a good uptown person. She was a rebel, far more of a rebel than Margaret ever was and was never anything else. Mm. So like I said, this is not the first episode I want to do on birth control and abortion access or even just the first episode I want to do on Margaret Sanger. So I'm going to leave it here with this kind of mini anecdote and then we can talk mm -hmm. about it. Um, so much later in life, Margaret Sanger was working on a biopic about her life <laughs> and the film was never produced. Uh, but in the script, Margaret had rewritten the events of 1917 so that she was the martyr on the hunger strike. <gasps> You're kidding. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. And I think that kind of speak volumes on how Margaret saw her and her sister's roles in the founding of the birth control movement in America. Yeah, no kidding. So that's my mini history lecture. I'm so excited to dive more into this. We'll be back next week. I don't know what yes. we're talking what about. What are we what are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. We'll have to it'll have to be a surprise. <laughs> It will be a surprise. It'll be a surprise to me too. <laughs> For sure. Okay. Thanks so much. Until next time. <laughs>